Howdy folks, welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Mills on the 4th. On today's episode, we have a good friend of mine and lead singer of Genius Techno, Danielle Williams. We talk about how she grew up, Christian rock, how we met, and how the band formed. So, what's your musical background? Oh, background? Like, you mean what I like, or what do you... Like, how'd you start out? What'd you find out you had the, you had the knack? Oh, shit, man. Um... I don't even remember. I think it's got to be a combination of um, just being around the house and singing musicals and stuff with my mom okay. and my sister. And we'd all like, I don't know. I did a part. My sister did a part. My mom did a part. They were sopranos, and I was the deeper voiced <laughs> one. So I always had to do the boys' parts, which is fine. Um, but it filled in, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, we would always do some kind of three-part harmony. Um, and that's kind of how my mom taught me the ear, I guess. And uh, it would mostly start off with musicals and some gospel music, some take six. Um, and then, like, some Clark sisters, but then also some... Um, I don't know when when pop was like a big deal like we would do we would sing Whitney Mariah all, all kinds of stuff but then my mom she kind of got us hip to like you know your um the winds of change I don't know there was a song called the winds of change it was probably one of my favorite songs by this German group called the scorpions um and that just kind of like piqued my interest in other things and a bit of, you know, Bowie and then kind of a little bit more into um, Pink Floyd and just kind of, we went down rabbit hole. My mom listened to everything. She listened to everything except country, to be honest. You know, that's fair because I didn't really get into country until maybe I was like nine and it's because of Randy Travis and I was the closest voice I can imitate. So... <laughs> That's the truth, you know, like, okay, I don't know what the sound is, but I feel like I can pull that off, you know. Mm -hmm. Funny story, I found he also did the voice for Mr. Wynn on Hey Arnold, the singing voice, at least. The what? All right, remember when Mr. Wynn on, on Hey Arnold, the Asian dude, apparently had this thing where you can... Yeah, 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 yeah. That was actually Randy Travis doing the vocals for that. Get out. <laughs> so, what was it like growing up? Oh, man, um... So, grew up in a, well, it was largely secular uh, when it was just me, my mom, and my sister. So, it was just us, just us girls living in Germany. That was my, really my, some of my first memories, though, are, were on the Alabama military base. Um, I don't remember if it was Montgomery or Mobile, but I remember hearing both those <laughs> towns. It started with an um, M, either yeah, way. Yeah, it started with an M. But, um... So it was just me and my sister and my mom. And then we moved to Germany. So, like, I don't know. All of us were just together. It was just kind of us three against the world, my sister, my mom, and I. And then my mom met my stepdad. And uh, they converted to almost a cult. <laughs> okay, this is when it's getting interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just remember the church was called Upper Room Holy Ghost Mission. Okay. And, um, so they had church Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then we all got off on Saturdays, went to church Monday or Sunday morning, and then came back for Sunday evening service. We got a break on Monday. So we went to church literally five days a week. So we didn't have time to do anything else but like be kids, you know, or even do homework. <laughs> so what yeah. would be like the parallel belief system to that since it since you're looking back it's more of a cult, what would it be closer to like kind of Christianity, maybe Scientology, maybe a little bit of Mormonism? What would be the closest parallel to people who aren't familiar? 
they would not say this would be um, kind of like if the way America thinks of Muslim radicalism sort of, the way that like they, um, there's an oppression of woman quote unquote or whatnot, the way that they think about Muslims is the way that this Christian sect was. Well, shit. It really was. Yeah. Um, I think I'm really wide-eyed right now. Yeah. No, they, they oppressed women to the point where, like, basically you, as a woman, you were expected to um, be barefoot and pregnant at 17, 16, 17, and married. Um, and so, like, a lot of the women didn't go to school or college. Um, they went to high school, finished high school. And then get married off and start having kids. So, like, if you were 18, 19 years old and not married, you were considered kind of an old hag. Um, and they encouraged you to go to Bible college um, with this church in general. Because when we moved back to the States, we joined the, the same similar denomination, but it was predominantly white church. Oh. Um, believe the same thing. Mm. So when did you get smart up? Oh man, it took me a long time to break uh, myself away from that church, but I just knew it was toxic for me because I'm like, this can't be right. Like, I know that I personally wanted to go to college. I knew I was smart enough to go. I knew I was like curious enough to want to go to college and actually kind of expand my horizon. And I didn't want to be a mother at 19, 20, 21. 25, 30, shit. Like, I don't even know if I 100% want to be them right now. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like the way that men were able to have autonomy and women were under the yoke of either their parents or their husband. That's your only choices as a woman. So, I'm like, no fucking way. I have my own mind. I make my own decisions. I'm able to assert myself in this world as a full-on human being. Why do I have to do this? Like, something is very wrong here. Oh, yeah. So, when I went to college, I ran to college. There would be times when my parents would come pick me up for church, and I would not answer my dorm phone. And they couldn't let them on campus to come get me. And I would just be like, oh, man, I overslept <laughs> just so I didn't have to go. All right. So if you don't mind me asking, where'd you, where'd you go to school? Oh, man, I went to Bowie State University, HBCU, BSU. Yeah, I love that college. It taught me so much about myself. All right, cool. I know a lot of alumni, actually. So, you know, all right. I remember you mentioning when your mom was still in Germany that she was a part of this rock band. What was it called again? Oh my gosh, it was called Sternrhythmica, or the Rhythm of the Stars. Um, so it was a German rock band. Uh, kind of, if 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 you could imagine the quintessential hair metal band of the '80s and early '90s, that's what this band was. But it. Like, that, that's what they looked like, but they would play all kinds of covers. Um, my mom did a lot of Tina Turner. My mom did a lot of, um, oh, man, she did a lot of covers. And then she also did some original music that I can't remember, but I just remember going to rehearsals with her a lot and just kind of just listening in and being so involved in the music from afar and the the mom at that house would always turn on the TV for us to watch, like, you know, German television. But I couldn't understand German, so I would just kind of listen in on the music and just put the, the TV on mute and just listen and kind of vibe from upstairs. Well, sometimes I'd go downstairs, and I was so interested in playing the drums. I want to play the drums so bad because of it. But... um yeah, like the people were just rocking, awesome people. Didn't hardly speak any English. It was very, very broken English. 
but they understood music, you know, in the universal language. So what years were this? Um, it must have been like, man, 88 to 90 when my mom was kind of doing this band. And she was also in um, the military band. She was in this group called, um, I think it's Stars and Blue or Star, Stars and Stripes or some, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and they would travel all over Europe going to military bases and singing, even though she was in the military. So she had to audition for it. Her regular job was like a paralegal. Um, but when she would be back home in Germany with us, then um, not on tour, then she would, you know, do the, the, the German concerts off base. And I remember one time she took me there. <laughs> it was one of the coolest experiences that I've ever had because I didn't really understand the magnitude of what my mom was doing because I remember seeing her rehearse and um, us going to the babysitter on weekends when she would have shows. But this particular weekend, she didn't want to pay for a babysitter for two kids when only one was showing up. So my sister had gone on a camping trip with the Girl Scouts, and I was taken along with my mom. So she had me backstage when she was singing. I, I wasn't aware of anything. I was kind of playing with my toys, enjoying the music. And I started getting hungry. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go up on stage. So I went up on stage trying to get my mom's attention and went up on stage right as she was finishing a song. I knew when the song was ending and I just grabbed her. I was like, mom, I'm hungry. And the lights were so bright. I couldn't see anything off the stage. But all I heard was this just sea of people. <laughs> and I was like, what in the f holy shit in my little mind. I was just like, I hear a whole bunch of people. I can't quite see them. And my mom was like, oh, this is my daughter. And everyone's like, oh. And I'm like, what the? F I just want some food, man. <laughs> and it was like one of, in one of those town squares. Because in Europe, like, everything's in town squares. But it was in one of those town squares. I was just like, holy shit. And so one of the shop owners ended up being in the crowd. And grabbed me from backstage, opened his ice cream shop, and gave me a mountain of ice cream. I swear it was like 30 freaking scoops. It was bigger than my head. And I remember <laughs> eating to my heart's consent and um, passing out from the sugar high. And then putting a blanket on me in the shop. And they closed down the shop, locked it up. And I just slept in the shop until my mom's show was over. And then she came and got me. That is fucking awesome. I'm going to tell you the truth. That is fucking amazing. All right. Yeah. So, okay. Stepdad's in the picture. Things a bit more on a religious side. And I remember you mentioning, we talked about you grew up on Christian rock too, right? Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, I mean, I don't care what anybody says. Audio Adrenaline, Newsboys, um, they were like kind of my first entree into Christian rock, but then bands like P.O.D., Blindside, um, they just started really piquing my interest. They were much more heavy. Um, what's that other band that, um, I can't remember. It, it, they had this uh, song called The Red. Um, Chevelle. Chevelle. Yes, Chevelle, Chevelle. They did a lot of crossover stuff, but oh, yeah. Tooth and Nail Records was my shit. And then I started getting into MXPX, which was more of a um, kind of, it was Christian punk, but they never really like was super duper religious. But they had some really good vibes, especially that song Chick Magnet. It was one of my favorites. How about Jars of Clay? Mm-hmm. So when Jars of Clay first came out and they had Flood, Flood was the first song. I remember hearing the, the initial riffs and it had so much rhythm. I was like, what the hell is this? It was kind of, it was just, uh, 
it had a soulfulness to it for their first album. And so I just remember my sister just being completely in love. And I was like, eh, 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 eh. And then I heard Flood, and I was like, yeah, this is it. This is it. But I was still more into P.O.D., uh, Blindside. Blindside was some heavy Swedish, like, deep shit. I was, like, into the deep cuts of Nara. Nara, it was... (laughs) I would singing that song to the top of my lungs in broken Swedish or whatever. Or maybe they were Polish. I don't know. But that song was dope. I admit, I've always had this weird love-hate relationship with Christian rock. And there's some, it's kind of funny because there's certain songs that have more of a spiritual theme that I appreciate, right? Like, and I admit, there were a couple of times when I might post a song up and sometimes it might be kind of teasing because I know... Just in case Danielle's checking our news feed, it's going to pop up. I'm going to get her attention. So, because <laughs> there are a lot of times. It's like I just send a bad signal a lot sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that being said, all right, I'm curious, though. How did you sneak a Marilyn Manson CD, or was it a tape, into this house of God you're, you're oh growing up in? Oh, my God. Okay, so back then, all I had was the radio to listen to, to like discover new music. So what I would do is I would listen to the radio all night long. And when they would play the song a second time that I really liked, I would record and time it perfectly and just record all of the songs right before they would do their call sign. And then I would press pause and then hit record on the next song or another song and another song that I would hear over and over again. So like I had a love for that song, the beautiful people, just the, um, they had a lot of like that kind of the, I don't know if it's considered blast beat, but like everything was, it was like kind of like a heartbeat. And I was an angsty seventh grader, eighth grader. And I was like, okay, this is, this is, it kind of had like an African tribal feel to it. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is dope. I like it. Um, And so I remember having that on my tape as well as tons of Rage Against the Machine that I heard during that time, especially most of Tom Joad, like all these different albums. And I remember my parents bought me a Walkman for my birthday. So I had these little tapes that I would record and I would put them in and kind of sneak out the house and walk to school. And I remember one day um, I was walking to school. My dad usually went to work like at like five o'clock in the morning and I was about to go to school at seven. He ended up not feeling so good and staying back. And I was leaving the house and he's like, oh, what are you listening to? And he grabbed <laughs> my Walkman earpiece and put it in and it was Marilyn Manson <laughs> and Beautiful People. And my dad, he took his the earphones off and he's like, oh, okay, all right. And he took my Walkman he's like, oh, can I see that? And he took it. And he just squished his hands together and crushed the whole thing in the tape. He just pulled out the tape and then pulled the tape out of the tape. I was like, oh, oh my oh, okay. God. I well, I guess I won't be listening to any music anymore. Yeesh. I wonder what his reaction would have been if he discovered mayhem. <laughs> Yo. He would have, like, laid his hands on my forehead with anointing oil and prayed over me and asked the Lord to deliver me Satan from my life. Sounds about right. Mm-hmm. But you know, the funny thing about it is when I first heard of beautiful people, when I first heard it, I was trying to figure, okay, where's that drum pad I've heard before? And then it dawned on me. Mm. Green Day's Longview. Fuck yeah. Yeah. In fact, yes. I'll never forget. I was watching. I forgot oh, what. Down. Exactly. I'll never forget what it was. It was something. What came out first? Yeah, Longview came out first, and yep. 
I forgot who it was, but I think it was Billy Joe Armstrong, right? I, I can't remember. This might be kind of a Mandela effect or something, but he, he might have put like a double mask on. He started going, the beautiful people, the beautiful people. And then he went into Longview just to kind of let people, yes, guys, I'm very aware. Anyway. They did an interpolation of like both? Or, or, yeah. You know, they just combined it? Like an interpolation yes. at the first because the drum pattern was going, right? So they just went into Longview and I was like, you cheeky bastard. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so vocally and musically, who are your biggest influences and what have you learned from them? Okay, I have to be perfectly honest. So on, oh man, okay. So there's this song called Worthy is the Lamb by Bishop Norman L. Wagner. That song affected my life so much because of the ups and downs. And then I got the charge at youth camp to actually lead that song. That tested my vocal range so much and let me know that even when I have a very deep alto, higher tenor voice, I can rock the shit out of a range I have range um and so that that like let me know I can challenge myself vocally but then also musically um believe it or not one of my first songs that I learned was an audio adrenaline song called I don't know I don't even remember what the song um, uh, uh, oh, Lost the Plot. My first song that I learned, and then Matchbox 20's Push, second song. But then Rage Against the Machine came into my life. And the way that they were able to blend culture, cross culture, and the messaging, politics, angst, like all of that that stuff that I was going through, but I wasn't old enough yet to vote, but I could understand why it was important for me to like look up and research what was going on in my world and how it was going to affect me. And then they were musical geniuses. Tom Morello is a guitar god. <laughs> I love him so much. And I've met him and he's just as humble as like usually you shouldn't meet your heroes oh yeah because they will disappoint you but that guy is is a true hero like a guitar hero for real he deserves completely on that for sure um but yeah like that whole era of 90s early 2000s music was pivotal for me because it kind of formed the basis of how I interpret the world in song, how I write, um, and even how I compose. Because I look for things that are simple yet complex. Um, I love playing with dissonance. I love playing with reconfiguring, breaking the rules, really, you know? Things are like, oh, one, one, three, five, one, five, seven, eight. <laughs> like, people are wanting to do these, these crazy rules, and I'm like, okay, let's bend it. That's the thing about Tom Roll. I give a lot, a lot of credit for. Like, one... It's like he's a pretty humble dude. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago, 2015, well, actually it was a few years ago now, a few years ago, 2015, when Dr. No of Bad Brains fame, you know, mm-hmm. fell ill and had to, they had to go fund me out. I was the dude that sent, you know, anybody to claim Bad Brains as an influence, especially Tom Morello. I was like, uh-huh. yo, get this out. Your, your single boost is way bigger than mine. So he did me a solid, you know, really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, he actually listens to people and he looks at he his does. 
social media. Oh, yeah. And when he meets people in person, he he's looking at you in the eye. And he's not too proud to be like, okay, get away from me, don't have a conversation. No, he wants to have a conversation with you. He wants to know who the fuck you are. Oh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about that, too. And, you know, I found a lot of stuff about him I didn't realize I knew. <clears throat> like, well, actually, you know, that one's kind of a relevant detail. But I thought it was kind of funny. He was, he was a stripper for a quick second. When I found that <laughs> one out, I didn't. And the thing about it is, though, remember, he had kind of a fro back in the day, right? So I'm like, I just ima- I just, I'm just curious what his name was back then, you know? Like, I just think about the episode of Simpsons, you know, when he was, when Dr. Hibbert was Malcolm Sam. Yes, I was thinking that of Malcolm. <laughs> I was thinking that of Malcolm Sex. <laughs> it's one or the other. I'm thinking that, but yeah, you know, and I always found it, the cool thing about it is his his approach to guitar playing. Like he always said, he was the DJ of the band. He wasn't a guitar player, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially I had never heard. So I didn't realize that that they didn't have a DJ at first when they were doing Bulls on Parade, when they did, he was doing the scratching. And I was like, okay, all right, all right. And then I heard after seeing an interview that, oh, no, he scratched on his guitar. Yes. like, yo, yo, he is brilliant. I agree. You know, I completely... Like, who else has done that before him? You know... Pig scratching has been there since the dawn of time, but it all depends on how you evolve and what you do. Like, for example, right. Larry... used it in a hip hop context. Sort exactly. Of. Like, Larry Graham is not the first person to slap and pop a bass, right? But mm-hmm. for somebody to evolve that technique into his own thing, I haven't seen anybody do into that. Into a signature. Exactly. You know, but speaking of creative processes, what's yours? Oh my gosh. So. It involves a lot of whiskey, usually. <laughs> hey, it helps, you know. And so what happens is, like, something might drop in my kitchen. And then I'll hear, like, a beat. And then I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, what can I write to this? Or a subject matter will come up. And I'll be thinking about something like, for instance, looking for bad came up because I, I had to move on my birthday, right? From that crazy ass roommate's house. Don't even want to mention her name, but, um, I had every intention of moving out by myself, but ended up having to move with my sister, which was all cool because I was never, I will never leave my sister behind. So like she and I moved and when we moved into our new place, I was thinking, just really thinking about, you know, like all of the shit that I went through with that old roommate. And being taught to be docile, being taught to turn the other cheek, and if they slap you in that cheek, you turn the other cheek again. Like, you know, and just trying to create a sense of peace. Because oftentimes most people, when people don't like you, for whatever reason they don't like you, it's usually because, not because of what you have, but it's because of what they lack. And so it's not that they can get the same thing or they want what you have, but they don't want you to have something. Not because they want it. And so that is a far cry from jealousy. Jealousy is they want what you have. But I was talking to my sister about this the other day. What is jealousy? Jealousy is that they want what you have. But being a hater is they don't want what you have. 
but they don't want you to have what you have. Right? And so my old roommate was a hater. That's the word for her. She was a hater. She didn't want us to have what we had because she was thought she was entitled to even more than what we had. Okay, fine, whatever. Work for it. Do whatever. Entitlement is a motherfucker. So when that came about, what I did was I was thinking about that, and I tried to work it out with her. I like to work things out with people before I cut them off. Because, you know, maybe my perception was wrong. Maybe it was not quite what I thought it was. But I'm learning now to trust my intuition and, and, and enforce my boundaries. But in the case of that, it definitely was, I needed to trust my intuition. And so my intuition was singing a song to myself of like who she is was looking for the wrong in us to justify her need to exact her privilege. She was looking for us to have a modicum of mm, of ghetto or, you know, not ghetto because ghetto is a stupid word to use. She was looking for us to have a modicum of hood rat or um, stereotype in us. And when we never gave it to her, she was pissed off. You know, it's like that good white person who thinks, oh, I think I'm helping this nigga out. They won't say it like that, but that's what they act like. That's that, that's that white liberal of, oh, I think I'm helping this person out. You know, they're less fortunate than me when realizing, no, we're, this is a mutually beneficial situation. You actually need me. And that's where, that's where that, that disconnect was for her. And so she didn't want to have anything to do with my sister or me. And me because me and my sister have a close, close relationship. And when she said that shit to me, she's like, oh, you could stay, but your sister has to go. I was like, go ahead and fuck yourself. We're a package deal. She kind of reminds me a little bit of the teacher from Everybody Hates Chris, you know? Oh, I used to watch that show, but I didn't, I don't remember the whole thing. Okay, there was this one teacher, and, you know, when Chris was growing up, this one racist-ass teacher, right? But she didn't realize how racist she was, because she said it with a smile on her face. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she didn't realize how fucked up what she was saying. Like, wow, are you not listening to yourself? Kind of moments. I didn't get the joke then, but now I have a better understanding now. Like, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. Because the thing is, she realizes when he grows up, when Chris grows up, she would not be able to compete. So she's trying to make him feel less than. And so a lot of times, even in the black community, we are socially conditioned in America as as a whole to believe in our own inferiority. Right? And so because of that, if you move into a neighborhood or if you do something that's different from what everybody else is doing, they're automatically assuming that you're just exactly like them because they don't see what's behind the scenes. And so when you get more or you're doing more or you're being more or you're like whatever, doing something different because you have enough autonomy to exercise what you like and what you want 
other people get pissed off and jealous or become haters because they realize that you are being free. Freedom is not just like a, a, a just a, 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 a concept. It's a mindset, yes, but it is also action. Even though freedom is a noun, it is a verb as well. You have to exercise it. So if you are acting free and other people see you acting free with autonomy and they wish they could act free, then they get pissy when you are more free than them. I was wondering, looking back, have there ever been people that you grew up with and you thought were cool, but you kind of look back, wow, they didn't like black people. They just like me. Mm-hmm. What did it yep. feel like when it dawned on you? So, huh. I'll tell you a story. This guy, Andrew, I won't even mention his last name, but Andrew. Andrew, he loved the idea of a smart black person. He thought I was an anomaly. He wanted to be around me. He wanted to, like, he wanted to absorb me. In all the ways. And then he got a cool reality check from his mother. Who was like, oh, yeah, you can have fun with her, but you can't bring her home. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm conflicted. You are like, I want to learn everything from you. But my mom says, like, you can't come here. You can't come over. And I said, that's reality. And he's like, oh, but, but, but. I was like, you do what you want with that information. And he never saw me again. Because his privilege was more important than what I had to offer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, happens then. Her very very similar stories like that, either identical or variants, you know. Yeah. You know. So now I don't give a fuck what people say, do, think, or whatever. Like you could have been my friend for two seconds or twenty years, but if you encroach, and now you all of a sudden think that. I'm a threat, continue to think I'm a threat. I'm going to continue to do what I want and be myself. And if autonomy scares you, it scares you. Not my fucking problem. There you go. Hmm. Because I'm going to be free. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. All right. I remember a couple of things going back to when you were younger, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there was this weird section of sky I noticed. What did you do? Oh my God, I loved it. What do you, what do you say uh, you were a sky kid? Yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. I loved ska because I was a brass instrument player. Like, so when I was in middle school, in the elementary school, I had an opportunity and well, I wanted to play saxophone. And... It was too expensive to rent the saxophone for me, but my my music teacher thought I I had the um, capacity and the ear to be able to play any instrument. And so he's like, okay, here, here's a trombone that I have. Go ahead and play it. And so this was a beat up trombone, and all I had to do was get a mouthpiece. I got this mouthpiece, and I just borrowed it from him, and I played the shit out of this trombone. E flat, B, B flat, like, 
like I was rocking the shit out of this trombone because I, I looked at the, the instrument and he told me, okay, this is what it is. This is the sound that it makes. So with the trombone, it's a sliding instrument. So you can kind of like manipulate it and your mouth and your positioning to make it work. And I couldn't even reach out to seventh position. But when this teacher gave me that trombone, I made that trombone a part of my body. <laughs> I noticed a lot of people that play brass instruments or singers, they have amazing lung capacity. So they usually make some pretty good singers and vocalists, right? I've always yeah. wondered, was that coincidental or was there something to that? No, I think there's something to that. So... So you have to have the lung capacity because you're like blowing basically raspberries through a, a, a mouthpiece, which is not a reed. The reed, you have a tongue, your tongue kind of like uh, regulates and modulates the air that's going through it. But when you're a brass player, you have to use your lungs. You have to use the capacity that you have. And... There are other assistants or whatever, but you are blowing with your whole body. And so one thing that I do know is that, like, some people who blow out with their cheeks, no, no. I have an embouchure. I have a very tight, strong embouchure that told me what's up. And so my parents were, like, trying to get me braces when I was younger. But I was like, mm -mm, it's going to ruin my embouchure. And I've been training for this for years. So no, no, you do not get to ruin my embouchure that I've cultivated for years from sixth grade all the way up to high school to try to get me braces. Fuck y'all. <laughs> no, seriously. I did not want to ruin what I had. So I was like, you know what? I don't care if I have a little bit, bit buck teeth. I love playing this instrument. And I'm going to play. I'm going to play until my heart's content. And my parents knew that I was more passionate about that. So they used the braces money to get me a, an, an F key rotary so I can reach out to seven physician without having to have it touch the ground. Nice, smart move, you know. I've always admired a passion about you, you know. So, you also play bass too, right? Yeah, oh my god. That was my 16th birthday to my uh, that my parents got me. Because they knew from 7th grade. From 7th grade. When I got my, no. I got my first guitar acoustic guitar sixth grade and then I got um like I played it seventh eighth ninth grade so for my 16th birthday they were like yo you know she's already adept like she can kind of navigate her way through the treble clef let's get her a bass clef instrument and so they surprised me with a mint green short neck fender jazz master bass and i was able to reach out and the first song that i learned was that um it was a raging is a machine song i say hold on Okay, I don't know. It, it, the, the beginning was a very good bass line and a beautiful blasting. Yo, I learned that bass line like the back of my hand. I could still play that to this day on everything. But I learned how to play bass, but more importantly, I understood how to compose between treble and bass clef. 
because they didn't occur to me before. So, you know, when you're writing, you have your, your five lines, right? And then you have your five lines for bass or treble. For some reason, because my brain was already in bass clef, when I moved to guitar, I couldn't read treble clef. I couldn't. I was like, what, what, is, what is this madness? And so when my parents bought me a bass, they were like, oh, because I was only doing tabs and tablature for um, guitar. And I was like, yeah, this is good enough. But when I, my parents got me the bass, I was able to transpose and like, oh, I understand. Okay, the F here is the F here. And then the, uh, oh, okay. So I just had like a better understanding of both clefs put together. I don't know why it didn't connect with me. But then when I went to college and I was a music major at the beginning, they showed me the theory and they put things in numbers. And for some reason, my logical brain switched on. And so I was able to understand one, three, five, seven, nine, 11, 15. And then going to like, okay, dissonance will be happening in the eight if you put the seven and the just connected. And I was like, oh, shit. that's why when this song plays, Oh, I get chills because that dissonance gives me chills in my body because my vibrations are quite right. And then I understood when I said that I vibe with someone or I had a good vibration with someone, it was real. Like for real, for real. Vibes are real. Mm. So, all right. So you enter in a studio too, right? Mm-hmm. You enter in a studio too, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Not intern. I hired intern to our studio. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what was that like? So I was a marketing person, and so I actually introduced QR codes as an introduction to the studio on a, a business card. So I actually. Um, created a whole entire marketing campaign for this 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 studio called Midi East Midi East not Mid East which was a totally other studio in Virginia our studio was in Virginia uh, excuse me excuse me it was in Bowie and so I actually did their entire marketing campaign smart goals and everything like that and um, I was there for open houses and um, DeMont Pender putting a mural on the wall. It was kind of cool. So I just wanted to be involved in that because if I said, if I can't actually music, I am going to be involved in this industry in some way, shape, or form. And I was already in the marketing industry for property management. So I was like, okay. Let me use those skills and transfer it over into the music space. But that wasn't my passion. My passion was in creating music, actual music. And so I was like doing all this stuff and I had to like play the part, wear the heels, put the hair up, wear the makeup. That's not fucking me. I know. That is not you at all. Mm-mm. No. If I want to wear lipstick, I want to wear lipstick so I can smear it across my face in a performance. I like how you think. <laughs> yeah. I'm like David Bowie in my heart. So, no. I can see that. All right, so I know we met through Afropunk and everything, right? And mm. everybody knows how my story with Afropunk and no, I was on Afropunk, you were on Afropunk. 
So the guy who was trying to do an Afropunk tour. Yeah, him. Introduced me to you. Oh, yeah. And you and I connected, and I came over to your house with my bass, trying to be like, yeah, I know bass, blah, 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 blah. But I realized you didn't have a strong singer, so I wanted to sing, and I had a whole bunch of fucking ideas. I was like, no, I have fucking songs in heart, which were also written down on paper, that I wanted to get out. I just wanted to be able, like I had multiple dreams of being able to be on stage and just like belt it out. Yeah, and I, I really convinced you that that was the right idea because you and I had so much in common. Absolutely. That when we met online. So what you found about Afropunk? Oh my God! So this one girl, uh, no, this one guy, he was a counselor events coordinator at Bowie State and I was working in kind of in the nearby his office as a manager for the student union and his office was in that same location and so we were already friends, and he already knew I loved Rage Against Machine, but I ended up getting the job. And so we would share music and, like, exchange stuff kind of in secret because he was much older. He was, like, he was a grad student when I first started as a freshman, and then he was, like, almost 30 or 30. Yeah, actually, I gave him a gift on his 30th birthday my sophomore year in college. And I was like, yo, like, you're dope. This is so cool. And let me tell you, he, he made me comfortable to be myself in a black university in college. He just made me feel like if else accepts you, I do. And so, he would listen to music or whatever, and he would go and research music that I introduced him to. And so, like, the coolest part of meeting this guy was he went to meet with me to a show in New York that I had nobody else no other black folks at my college to go with. He came with me to a Rage Against the Machine show when they got back together. Nice. And he put his arms around me to kind of like protect me from the crowds so I wouldn't get smushed against the gates. Yeah. And I enjoyed the fuck out of myself singing all the lyrics. But at any rate, so when we did, we did that, he came back around. He's like, oh, yo, you're serious. Let me introduce you to this other girl. It's this group called Afropunk. So he introduced me to this girl who knew everything about Afropunk. She was always on it. I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know there was more people like me. So she and I connected. We had so much fun, and I was like, you know what, let me go on a limb and go to a show with her. We traveled up to Pennsylvania to see her boyfriend, like, play. It was awesome. I was like, yo, he's a drummer for a fucking dope-ass band. You mean Desiree? Yeah. 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 And so she and I became very, very close. But then her boyfriend at the time, I was like, hey, we need a bass player. And she was asking me how everything was going when I met you. 
I was like, yeah, we need a bass player, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, my boyfriend plays bass. Oh, let's invite him in. And so he became our bassist. Yeah. And he created a sound that was so unique to Jenny Hates Techno. Oh, yeah. Jenny Hates Techno became a thing. And then you had been living next door to a fucking genius on the drums. To Kelvin, yeah. Who came over and was like, yeah, that girl is cute. I want to come over. (laughs) Yep. On some. She was attracted to your your sister's friend. And then he came over and killed it. And he was just like, oh, yeah, I'm still just playing around, whatever. I don't have a drum set. I don't practice. I don't do anything. But he had it in his soul. Oh, yeah. And we became a group. No, Kelvin on drums. Chris on bass. Even though he's a drummer, like it just it just became like, oh, a thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's kind of funny how it all happened because, all right, I invited you, or I still have the tweet referencing that, right? And it's kind of funny what happened was like mm-hmm. just invited the bassist over. She's just invited the bassist mm-hmm. over a tryout. You know, she's pretty cool. And it was funny because you know my buddy MVP, the wrestler, right? He mm-hmm. saw that and he made a, he made kind of reference. I was like, no, nothing like that, <laughs> you know. I was about to quash on that quickly, you know. And the funny thing about Chris, like I remember I first met Chris offline in 2010, and that's when I met like a kind of a mutual friend of ours, you know, Courtney, right? She's like a, one of the OGA peers who was really close to Desiree, and we all met at Bench Chili Ball, right? And that's where I met, you know, Polar Vibes was there, um, Jazz was there, aka W and DeCooning. Um, and, you know, Chris was there too, and along with Desi, and, you know, I remember this really shy guy in Chris, you know, he talked a little bit, we talked a little bit, and I said, you know what, I think I might need a drummer, you know, and he said, hey, want to jam sometimes? Like, sure, no problem, so this was back in 2010, but the crazier part about it is, though, I almost quit music in 2009, but it was this conversation with and actually a mutual was actually a mutual of ours, you know, it was Noak from Drew Hill. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that said, you got to do this. And really if it was for him to kind of light that fire in my ass again, I don't think we'd be, you know, there you go. So, and then I meet you I and you find you're singing. I'm like, this is falling into place perfectly. I don't know. And the person that introduced me to you yeah. was a fake. He was a fake. I know, right? And I called him out during the Afropunk Festival. I called his ass out. Yep. I'm glad so, you know, but you know what? I'm glad that a fake created some helped contribute to something really real. I know. All right, back to it. So, are right, you so tell me about the time you, you ran into Raheem Devon. Oh my God. Ugh. So I was, I was working at the student union, as said. And so I was responsible for meeting any of the artists that were coming onto campus. And Malcolm Jamal Warner came and played the bass and he was doing like his thing. And so, Raheem Devon was supposed to be like the the headliner mm-hmm. and so he was I was so excited because I had I had known about him before he was booked I was super excited about Crossroads I was super excited about like everything that they had done all their all albums and Raheem Devon came out with his solo stuff. So I was like, okay, cool. I get a chance to like enjoy, but we booked Crossroads. We didn't book Raheem Devon. We booked Crossroads. And so he came and he was like, okay, all right, cool. And so we had to keep them, him there. My, my job was to keep him there. 
and make sure he had all his needs met. And so, like, he went through the back door, and he's like, oh, I'm about to go get my hair done. And I was like, okay, cool. Here? He's like, no, I'm about to get my hair done away. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't leave. We're paying you for your time. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm about to get my hair done. I was like, no, 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 no. You're going to make me lose my job if you don't stay here. Like, I am tasked with making sure you stay. And he was like, whatever. And he left. And I was like, yo. And so I had to tell my boss, like, yo, he left, whatever. And his manager, like, came and tried to, like, you know, calm the situation. But I was like, yo, we're paying him for his time. And he's leaving. He's being an asshole. And then he clotheslined me. He's like, oh, when he came back with his hair done, he's, he clotheslined me. I was like, oh, take a picture with me. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to take a picture with me. He's like, yeah. And he clotheslined me. And he had his arm wrapped around my neck real tight. So I threw up my AKA sign. I threw up my pinky. Because I was like, no, fuck you, dude. Like, you were being a dick to me this whole time. I told you I could lose my job. And you did whatever you wanted to do, even though we're paying you for your time. And I had a responsibility to make sure you needed everything that you got. You got everything that you needed, and you requested it. Go fuck yourself. So I took a picture, cheesing, with my pinky signed up. And he was just being a dick. So I was like, you know what? I'm no longer responsible for you. I told my boss, and I left. And I came back to him for his concert. Malcolm Jamal Warner, who is way more famous than he is, did exactly what I told him to do. I had more respect for Malcolm Jamal Warner. So, that was that. That's fair, you know, because I met Raheem Devon years ago at a place in D.C. called, exactly, at a place called 202 Studios in D.C. He didn't care if I lost my job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was an interesting moment, I'll put it that way. He had this little Jerome doing a lot of stuff for him, though. He he really thought he was more stay, I'll put it that way. (laughs) Um, That's the only thing I got to say about him. Shorter than I expected, though. Best thing, you know, something they really can say about him, you know. All right, so, all right, so what's on your playlist lately, though? Huh? What's on your playlist lately, though? Ooh, lately, Chloe X Haley. Hmm. And a lot of podcasts. Like I've been into Lovecraft Country. Nice. And of course, um, <laughs> oh, the murder mystery. Wait, wait, no, not murder mystery, but true crime. Um, what is it called? Um, Shit, my food is getting delivered. But it's called Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered. That's the one. It's not Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered, but it's something like that. Yeah. 
Stay sexy and don't, don't get murdered is their like tagline. Okay. I think I've I think I know what show because I think I listened to an episode with you one time. It's pretty cool. Hmm. All right. Hold on. Now you're making me look it up. <laughs> Hold on. My favorite murder. That's the one. Yeah. My favorite murder. Yeah, my favorite murder is pretty dope. So. You know, I really can't wait for this COVID-19 shit to end. Anyway, check out our album, Alien Pond, on Bandcamp, Apple Music, and everywhere music can be found online.